it's survival, right? You just do what you have to. If I think about it really in depth, it scares me because at any time that dual agent could get arrested, he could turn us in and we would be sent to prison. Years ago, when I worked for the city of Rancho Cordova, just outside of Sacramento, California, my colleague Monet occupied the cubicle just in front of mine. His consultancy with the city eventually came to an end, so naturally his cubicle was packed up and rather barren, except for an 8.5 by 11 printout of a quote by Teddy Roosevelt. On my last day with the city, I walked over to Monet's old cubicle, pulled the thumbtacks that secured the piece of paper. It was mine now. In fact, I carry it with me whenever I go on job interviews. Why? I'm motivated by the words. It speaks of purpose, trial, and error, shortcomings. It reminds me of the quintessential Assyrian activist. And I quote from the man in the arena. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles, or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly. Hi, everyone. Peter here with you, and I'm excited to be bringing you another episode of the Assyrian Podcast. I had a chance to sit down with Juliana Taimurazi, and as you'll hear, she wears many hats, talking about her interesting journey to the United States, her work with the Iraqi Christian Relief Council advocating for our people, but most importantly, we hear her resonating call to action. The Assyrian word for activism is awuda, stemming from common Aramaic, ayn, beth, dalath to do, to make, to cause, to serve, to slave. And Juliana embodies this definition in every sense of the word. Activists serve, perhaps even as far to say that they are servants to a cause, a belief, or to improve social conditions. Support for this week's episode of the Assyrian Podcast is brought to you by Tony Caligarakis and the Injury Lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that has been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Caligarakis. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at InjuryRights.com or 847-982-9516. Another word from the Assyrian Podcast Network. If you have an idea for a show that you think people all around the world would benefit from, please let us know and we'd love to get you on board. We want to support your big ideas and grow our Assyrian podcast family. You can find the new podcast show application form by going to assyrianpodcast.com or emailing us at info at assyrianpodcast.com. And now, here's Juliana Taimurazi. Juliana, welcome to the Assyrian Podcast. It's such a pleasure to have you here with us. Thank uh, you. Thank I you, am... Peter. Good to see you in Chicago. Yeah, likewise. Juliana, why don't you introduce yourself to the listeners? Tell us who you are. 
Shlama alohun. Hello, everybody. My name is Juliana Taimurazi. I uh, am an Assyrian from Iran. I was born and raised there until I was 16. Uh, they smuggled me out when I was 16 into Switzerland. I stayed in hiding for one week in Zurich. And then after that, they smuggled me over to Germany, where we sought religious asylum. We became refugees and came to the States in 1990. So most of my life, I've lived here in the U.S. So you were being smuggled after after the fall of the Shah? Yes. So the Shah fell in 1979 and our entire lives uh, were ups- became upside down. I lived through the war. We lived through the war. I was there until 88, 89, really. One of my good friends actually from school passed away, an Assyrian, passed away during one of the bombings. So, and then I remember we would run to the shelter, we would take cover. Uh, because Baghdad, Iraq would attack us repeatedly, repeatedly. Uh, and then we had to abide by Sharia law. So we as Christians had to cover our hair, our bodies. So the only thing you would see was uh, my face and my hands. Mm. Uh, we couldn't do the act of the cross. Um, and the reason I escaped at the time, a lot of people say, even Assyrians from Iran today say, why did you escape? You know, And I say, well... First of all, back then, um, I was under the age 30, I was unmarried, and people I was six, 15, 16 years old, and uh, when you were in that situation, you were not allowed to leave the country as easily, as freely. Uh, and I was told that I would burn in hell for my Assyrian Christian name. I was told that I uh, was unclean, Nagis or Najis. I couldn't play with my Muslim friends. My neighbors would spit on the floor, when, on the ground, whenever I w- would walk by. So we faced a lot of harassment, religious harassment back then, because revolution was just new. Yeah. The Islamic Re- Republic just came on board, uh, you know, to the country. So, so, so we escaped. And this is in the mid-80s, just to set some context for the listeners? Um, the harassment was happening in the 80s, but I fled in 89. So tell me about you fleeing. How did, how did you arrange for smugglers? Your family arranged that? Yes, I remember that we went through three sets of smugglers. Uh, the first set told my parents that they would put me in sheep clothing. Uh, they wouldn't put me next to real sheep. They would ship me over to India by car, by truck, and then they would fly me to Germany where my brother was. So obviously my parents said, absolutely not. The second set of smugglers said that we, I'm going to marry him, uh, mar- marry her. Um, I'll, she has to convert to Islam. We will destroy all her Christian paperwork. Uh, she'll put a chador and I'll fly her to Germany as my wife. And my father said, well, what if you don't divorce my, my daughter? Do- will you divorce my daughter? He said, well, no, she's going to be legally mine. And if I like her, I'll keep her. So, of course, they said no. Uh, the third smuggler came and said, he actually came, to be honest. We prayed and fasted. It was Easter of 89. About, uh, I don't know, 13, 14 days later, uh, my great aunt contacted us and said, I have a gift for you. And we went and there's this Muslim guy, Iranian, sitting there. And they said that he's a dual agent. He works for the government and he does smuggling on the side. Mm. And I don't mean to make a light of it. But now thinking back um, at the time when we were going through it, you don't think about it. It's survival, right? You just do what you have to. If I think about it really in depth, it scares me. Because at any time that dual agent could get arrested, he could turn us in and we would be sent to prison. So yeah, so he fixed it. He created a fake passport, a fake visa for me. And that's how we went to Switzerland and stayed in hiding. So you went from Tehran to Switzerland. 
Yes. So we stayed in in Zurich for, like I said, for a week. And then on the seventh day, sixth or seventh day, uh, the second smuggler came, knocked on the door and said, in this monastery, and said, pack up your bags, we're leaving. And he drove us over the border to Germany. Uh, said, he said to my mother and I, do not look up, keep your head down. Uh, we didn't even bring our luggage with us. We left everything with him. And said, he put us on a train on the train. We went, uh, met my brother who had been there, my father who had flown directly from, or he, he had a connection, connecting flight for, through Zurich. And that's where the next day in Germany, we sought religious asylum in the city of Essen. After how, how many years did you spend in Germany? 11 months. We were blessed. We were lucky. We only stayed there for 11 months. And you know, I would go to a, to a German school for languages, but my dream was always America. I'm going to America. I'm not staying here. So I really did not accept Germany as a place of living for me because I always lived in the future of coming to the United States. So when I came to the United States, when we landed in JFK airport, I bent down and touched the ground and kissed the ground because I wanted to come to the U.S. as a three, four-year-old. I loved the United States of America, even as a child. We used to listen to Voice of America in Iran, in hiding, obviously. Tell um, me about what is the Voice of America? Voice of America is a program that aired from the U.S. in Farsi, and we would listen to it. Obviously, again, it was smuggled in, so it, we we couldn't talk about it out in public that we're listening to Voice of America. And they would do news, they would play music, um, you know, things like that. We also used to listen to an Israeli program and an Iraqi program. Wow. So I'll tell you, Peter. So now when I hear newscasters from Iraq and they speak Fosha, right? Like this very literal Arabic. And when they say Baghdad, the way they say Baghdad, yeah. it scares me because it sends chill, chills down my spine because I remember during the uh, Iraqi-Iran war, we would put the Iraqi radio on and they would just be, you know, saying Arabic things against Iran, but with such vengeance and such hate sure. that, that those words, that tone of voice is still instilled in the me. So when, yes, exactly, exactly. So the, vo- the Voice of America, was that paid for by the U.S. government trying to infiltrate or spread news within... I don't think it was paid by the government. I'm not sure. That's a good question. I never thought about it. Uh, I don't know who it was paid by, but I know uh, it still exists. Uh, it was just, no, I don't think it was a propaganda. It was just airing, airing program that you could he- hear anywhere in the world uh, in Farsi, Voice of America in Farsi. Juliana, you land here in America. Where does life take you as a teenager, a 16-year-old? Yes. Um, so by the time I arrived, I was 17 already. I did not want to go sit with 14, 15-year-olds in high school. And remember, my, I barely know English, right? Um, so I, my family, the family cousins that I have and aunts that I have here, uh, they recommended me to take a GED examination, general equivalent diploma or something like that. It's, it's like the equivalence of, you take down, it's the equivalence of, passing high school in exactly America, right? graduating exactly. high school exactly so i literally locked myself in for uh so many months and i studied day and night day and night i studied to be able to pass that examination with a very little english that i knew but at the same time i was enrolled at this community college in chicago in uh in a suburb of chicago called oakton college uh, with the promise that as soon as I pass my GED examination, that they would apply that towards my acceptance into the school. Otherwise, they would 
dismiss me from this community college. So I passed this examination. I uh, went for my undergrad in human resource development and then my master's degree in human resource development here in Chicago. I'm sorry, my master's in instructional design. So which means instructional design means I would design training programs for engineers on a computer application called SAP. So I learned the SAP program, uh, different modules of this a computer program and I would teach engineers um, because I was a change manager and I, and I was a trainer in this company and then I opened my own business all of this happening in 2003 war erupts with Iraq and then our persecution begins in Iraq and then I start noticing really that the West was not really paying attention to the Assyrians in Iraq no one was talking about the persecution of our people it was just about Kurds and Arab Shiites and Arab Muslims. It's interesting. They never refer to Kurds as Sunni Muslims, right? So they would say Kurds and Shiites and Sunni Arabs. That's when I decided we have to do something about this uh, lack of knowledge in the West. Juliana, in 2007, you founded the Iraqi Christian Relief Council. I started volunteering for Catholic Charities because Catholic Charities is the organization that resettled us here in the U.S., so in 2006, I started uh, mentoring young men and uh, young women, young women and um, those who were widowed and had come here uh, or those young women that came without their parents. So we introduced them to different um, people, to different churches. And then in 2007, in July, I went to the Catholic church in Chicago, downtown Chicago, called Holy Name Cathedral. Um, and I literally ran into the cardinal. And the cardinal, um, now cardinal? late Cardinal Francis George, now late Cardinal Francis George, at the time in 2007, he was the president of the USCCB, uh, which is the United States, which, which is the bishops' conference within the United States. This um, is a group of bishops? Yes. That, that convene? It's based in D.C., yes. And they make all the decisions for the bishops and the churches. He was the president of the USCCB, and I walked up to him and I said, Cardinal, what is, what is the Vatican doing for the Christians of Iraq, for the Assyrians of Iraq? And he said, who are you? <laughs> Literally, he said, who are you? <laughs> and I said, my name is this, and I was born in Iran, and I escaped myself. I'm a former refugee. And he became intrigued. And he asked his uh, chancellor, Jimmy Legault, to take my information down. And he said, we're going to call you. And Peter, you know. So many people say we're going to call you and they never follow up. Right. But this man, Jimmy Legault, contacted me the next day on Monday. He said, I was in privy to your conversation with the Cardinal. What can we do for you? Called me into a meeting. So on July 25th of 2007, they encouraged me to start this organization, ministry, apostolate to raise awareness among Americans. Because I had gone into this meeting with a four-point plan of what, what the Vatican should do for the Christians of Iraq. From protection to aid to uh, political intervention, you name it, I had put in this four-point plan. But they said, of course, we're not going to bring this to the Vatican, but sure. you should introduce who you are and your people and what you're looking for to the American people. That, that afternoon in downtown Chicago, I sat at a coffee shop on uh, Wabash. For those of you who are from Chicago, <laughs> that coffee shop Mozart is no longer. But uh, I sat there and I wrote a letter to God. And I said, Lord, I don't know what you're asking me to do. This is overwhelming. But for your, for your glory, I will do this. But lead me to the right people, bring the right people to this cause. And so I called my mother and I said, Mom, they've asked me to do this. And she said, Brati. My daughter, don't do this. The Muslims are going to kill you. 
people are going to kill you in the Middle East. Yeah. And I said, okay, you're not helping me. I'm a rebel. I said, okay, mom, I have to go. <laughs> and then I contacted a friend of mine, Romel Benyamin, who used to be on TV here with me. I used to be, we both were on TV as Syrians around the world for 17 years. And I said, Romel, if you're not going to do this with me, I won't be able to do it. I don't know the first thing about nonprofits. Yeah. And then we contacted Violet Hamu. She came along, and then we brought Joe Danavi, um, Dr. Joe Danavi. Now he was a student back then. Sabah Hamoun and Ted Zaya and others. We brought them, uh, Hubert. We brought all these uh, men and women to the organization, and we designed the logo. We, you know, I have to tell you, Peter, a lot of Assyrians said, and a lot of uh, what who they call themselves Chaldeans said, you're not an Iraqi. What are you doing serving Iraqi or an Iranian focus on Iran? The Assyrians said to me, you're trying to marginalize the uh, Assyrian name. That's why you're calling it Iraqi Christian. And it was a heartache. But my team knows, my former team knows that we agonized over what to call this organization. Look, it was a strategic move. I'm going on record yet, yet again and saying Iraq was a hot issue. Christians in America connect to Christianity. It was a strategic move to call this Iraqi Christian Relief Council. And when we go to make presentations to their churches in synagogues and conferences, we introduce who these Iraqi Christians are, who the Assyrians are, why do they call themselves Chaldean and Syriac, and etc. So the goal is to spread awareness. We have our, our mission is to raise awareness, okay. to ask for prayers and ask for funding. And we send the funding for food, shelter, medicine, clean water, education, anything they need. Um, so from 2007 to 2014, we were simply working in Iraq. And those who were coming to the U.S., we helped resettle them. But starting 2014 and until now, we also have served the community of the refugees in Turkey, Lebanon, and Jordan. How so? In those three countries outside Iraq, but in Lebanon, Turkey, and Jordan, we have partners on the ground. We have or churches, we have organizations that we've vetted, vetted and we've established a long relationship with. And we send money for rent. Uh, we send money for food vouchers. We They purchase things for their household. Medication is very expensive, so we offer that uh, to them. Uh, we've had so many cancer patients that we've answered the call and we've helped support. Uh, we've had heart patients that we've supported. That's outside Iraq, um, and we continue to do so. And also, for the last two years, we've been advocating for um, their refugee status. Because, and that's a long conversation. I'll leave it for later if you're interested to talk about what is really happening to the refugees. The world, the Assyrian world, must, must become aware of how devastating the situation is outside Iraq. We'll go back to it. But inside Iraq, we do a lot more. When you approach a church or a synagogue, what is the ask or what is the pitch or what, what does the presentation look like? How do, you, how do you take what the struggle that our people are going through and then disseminating that, translating that, and offering that to a Western audience? So our presentations have evolved over the last 12 years. Uh, first of all, majority of the time times that we've gone have been through invitations, through word of mouth. A lot of churches hear about this issue or connect to the persecution of Christians issue. And then they go on, to, on the internet and they find the organization that I 
have found it. So initially, the, the presentation was a long 45-minute one, followed by a 15- or 20-minute documentary. But each presentation was about, from a historical standpoint, who the Assyrians are, and what's happened to them from a nationalistic, from a cultural perspective, and also when did we accept Christianity and what has happened to us religiously. We focus on our genocide, major genocide, but majority of the presentation is about what happened starting 2003 with images, with stories, with I've brought eyewitnesses with, with me who bear witness to what they've seen, what they've gone through. And then I show documentaries such as the Sargon Zadi's The Last Plight, for example, sure. or others. There are a few others that I'm a big fan of. And then the church takes a collection or we build a relationship where they support our projects that come from Iraq. But a lot of a lot of funding that comes our way, a lot of awareness that we've been raising on on mass has been because of Fox News, BBC, Christian television or radio programs, and etc. So, so they big, give they give our plight airtime, especially from 2014 until 2017. Yes, I was very busy in uh, mass media. Yes. Tell me about the refugee situation. Peter, it is absolutely heartbreaking. Somebody from U.S. government contacted me two weeks ago, and she said, I'm going to Jordan. I need you to help me meet some of the refugees. And These are Assyrian refugees? Yes. She has seen the truth. She has seen the realities of these, how these people live, and she was devastated. So these people have lived, some, some are still stuck from 2004, 5, and 6. They're stuck there. They're not able to leave. Why? Because the UN, United Nations Higher Commission on Refugees, UNHCR, uh, either does not review their paperwork or they're not eligible to leave. They don't want to go back to Iraq, so they're stuck in limbo, right? But the ones from 2014, 15, many of them don't have the refugee status, so it's very complicated. Bear with me. In Turkey, uh, as of the last year, year and a half, the Office of Immigration, of, not Office of Immigration, the Office of Refugee, which is United Nations Higher Commission on Refugees, has downsized drastically. So their office in, um, in Ankara is very small. Who has taken over the process? The Turkish government. Ankara, Turkey. Very scary. Turkish government, has police essentially, has taken over the refugee process. Meaning what? I'm a refugee from Iraq. I escape Iraq. I go to Turkey and I have to go to the police station. I turn myself in. They give, you, give me asylum paper and they, re, they displace me in a town. Not everybody's in Istanbul. Look, we have about 23,000 Assyrians. And when I say Assyrians, I also mean Chaldean and Syriac. They're all our people, yeah? Sure. The Assyrian, Chaldeans, and Syriacs are displaced in, across Turkey, 23,000, in very small villages, in medium-sized towns, or in Istanbul. Any refugee in any of these three countries I mentioned, they're not allowed to work. If they do work, it's illegal. And if they're discovered, they're deported, or they're stopped, or they're arrested. The government does not help. The government in Turkey helps maybe very, very little through health care. Very little. United Nations maybe gives a couple of dollars here and there. We have countless of people. I received a video today of an Assyrian woman that was digging in the garbage can in Istanbul looking for food. This is the reality that you would see if you took the time and go to Turkey to sit with these people to hear their plight. Now, in Turkey, they don't have much religious freedom. They have a little bit of health care but they don't have the refugee status. Why? Because 
continuously, United Nations says we're overwhelmed with the Syrian crisis, with the Syrian refugee crisis. Iraq falls on the bottom of the list, especially the Christians fall on the bottom of the list. Frankly, between you and I, I think they're discriminating, right? So they don't have the refugee status to be really accepted to different countries to be resettled. If you speak to them, do you want to go back? Most say no, because they're afraid of another ISIS to rise. Jordan is worse. Jordan has religious freedom. Jordan is a beautiful country with with a lot of good people, but also they're not allowed to work. They don't have any health care, and they're devastated. They live in roach-infested homes. It's really bad. Uh, Lebanon, they have religious freedom, but it's very expensive. When you talk about refugees in Turkey and Jordan and Lebanon, how can we as everyday Syrians help? How can we lend a hand? Peter, we cannot do it without our Assyrian people. If I could take uh, some of the leadership to Lebanon and Jordan and Turkey for them the, to really see. Our community's leadership. Yes, and that they would be the voice, not just to come and see and feel bad and walk away, but for them to be the voice and really mobilize the community, co- communities across the world. Mm. On average, rent is about 250 to $300 in Jordan and in Turkey. Uh, Lebanon is a little bit even more expensive. Food, on average, is about $150 a month, $100 to $150. These people don't work. These people had everything. These people were doctors, they were lawyers, they were farmers, they had stores, shop owners. They have nothing. There was a woman in Jordan, Rosun is her name. She was stabbed several times by ISIS as she, was, uh, she had left her two hair salons. She had two hair salons. So she had left her work, going home. She was taken, uh, stabbed several times, rushed to the hospital. Uh, we saw her scars, okay? Hmm. Her husband was beat was beaten by the Shabaks actually, because his cross was hanging in the car. And they the broke Shabaks, his ribs. The Shabaks are the is the minority group that came to Iraq from Iran about three hundred years ago, and they're Shiites. They're Shiite Muslims. They were they beat up this man. Uh, they beat him. They broke his ribs. His brother-in-law, his hips were broken, so they escaped to Erbil. They leave one daughter behind. She gets married. They go to Jordan, but the daughter stays in Erbil. In Jordan, children, a majority of the, she has five kids. I I believe she has five kids in Jordan. The three youngest catch this virus in Iraq that causes their eye, them, they to go blind. So these three children are on the verge of losing their eyesight. Okay, they they need special surgeries. One was, uh, one was operated on about 10 days ago. The other two have to have really severe glasses and severe and, and difficult treatments that they have to go through. Uh, and then she has two more daughters. Her daughter, 15, 16 years old, hasn't gone to school because she doesn't have the right paperwork. Schools don't accept them. The daughter in Erbil dies under mysterious circumstances. And two of her family members also die in the same hospital in Erbil through injection. You imagine millions of dollars of economic loss, family member loss, and now three kids are losing their eyesight. These people don't work in Jordan. This woman, for example, is devastated. So what Iraqi, what ICRC did was we paid for the surgery, we've paid for the glasses, we've paid for some, you know, food money, but 
the money that we had given, we had we did not anticipate the surgery, eye surgery. So everything went, most of the money went for the surgery. So we yeah. have to now pay for their rent. So again, the rent is on average about 250 This is one example. 17,000 Assyrians are in Jordan, 23,000 in Turkey, and three 4,000 in Lebanon. Approximately 45,000 people of your brethren are suffering. What ICRC is doing is we're launching a very big program, a very big campaign called Adopt a Family Program. If you can sponsor a family for $100 a month, you'll feed them for a whole month. $100, that's dinner for two people. Yeah. In one night, this family could eat at least eat with peace of mind for a month. If someone wants to pay $250 a month, that's rent for these individuals. We would give the family that is adopting this family we create a relationship with them. You get their pictures of this family, you get the stories and you get updates. If they are being resettled, if there's any movement, any news in their paperwork, you will hear about that. Because you will you will be the first to hear about this because you're the one who are sustaining them. Right. The partners we work with are trusted on the ground, whether it's in Jordan, whether it's in um, Turkey. In Lebanon, I need to find new partnerships, to be honest with you, because I wasn't, I'm very, um, I'm very detailed. And I'm very tough on the partners that I have. And when I demand reports and images and, and news, I need it right away. Yeah. And if they don't respond, because I'm, you know, I'm accountable, Peter, for people's money. Uh, I, I ask your listeners, I, I beg your listeners to really not just listen to this um, uh, podcast just as an, you know, something that they're doing and it's in the, back, in the background, playing in the background. But really open up your heart, really open up your heart and be someone that will affect, impact the lives of these people, your brethren, positively. And I promise you, the Lord will pay you 10,000 10, 10, times, uh, times over, really. So when, uh, when I go, I go there two, three times a year to Le- Jordan, especially, and once to Turkey, I've gone. When you speak to most of them, they say, we don't want to return to Iraq. But when I probe a little bit more they say look if we have security number one if we have security and if we have economic development we will go back Uh, not all some say you even put gold at my feet i will not return to iraq so what we're doing is we are advocating with the unhcr with the u.s government with other governments to open their doors to those that are able to to those that want to leave look Peter, I'm sitting in the United States of America, and so are you. We cannot demand people that are suffering in such conditions and eating out of garbage cans to either stay there or go back if they don't want to. I left Iran with as with freedom as a free woman. So I have no right to tell somebody, no, you need to stay there. If they want to stay there, I've dedicated 12 years of my life and my resources to helping them stay there in Iraq, for example, and rebuilding their lives and et cetera. But if somebody wants to leave, I am, I am a nobody. I cannot tell them to stay. So if somebody doesn't want to return to Iraq, and it is not fair to keep them in those conditions. So I advocate. I advocate for them to, to, for the governments to open their doors. Does ICRC have board of directors or board of advisors? Uh, we do. We have a board of advisors and we have board of directors. Majority of my board is comprised of uh, non-Assyrians. We only have one Assyrian with us, Violet Khamu. The rest are non-Assyrians. Uh, 98% of our work is with Americans, with non-Assyrians, with Christians and with the Jews. Even those Muslims who want to step in and help, we also welcome them as well. The reason for this is, look, 12 years ago, 
I would like to go on record and say, in an organized fashion, I believe Iraqi Christian Relief Council was the first organization that stepped out of the Assyrian community and really brought new friends into our community uh, from the Jewish uh, community and from the Christian American and European community as well. Uh, because my work is not just here in the U.S., it's also abroad. This is why the board is comprised of evangelicals, of Catholics, of, um, of Orthodox. Our uh, belief is that we all, regardless of our denomination, we are all children of Christ and we serve everyone sure. without, without any discrimination. I've never asked, are you Chaldean, are you Syriac, are you Assyrian? I say this because a lot of that goes on in the Middle East. A lot of that has gone on in Syria when before 2011. A lot of that happens today in Jordan. This woman, Ghassoun, that I just talked about, uh, a refugee in Jordan, she suffers from this. She, her, her Syriac church doesn't help, or the other church doesn't help, or the other church doesn't help. And honestly, the evangelical church has been the most effective in her particular, particular life. This is not an, an attack at all by any means on any of the churches, but I really believe that we should be more unified uh, because my board is unified. Your biography lists you as a senior fellow with the Philos Project. Can you yes. tell us about the Philos Project? Philos Project is an organization which was founded by Robert Nicholson, who is a visionary in 2014. I came on as their advisor, if you will, on uh, as a fellow uh, advisor on the Christian persecution issue in the Middle East. The mission, our mission is to promote positive Western Christian engagement in the Middle East. And we believe in a pluralistic Middle East. We believe in religious pluralism in cultural pluralism. And we work a lot on um, on different Middle East persecution issues. So the Coptic issues we have undertaken, the Assyrian case we've take, undertaken, and also we fight BDS, which is boycott, disinvestment, and sanctions um, and this against this movement or a campaign. BDS? No, BDS. BDS is something that those who are anti-Israel uh, promote and they're very active with, and we fight it as Philos and others. There are many organizations that are anti-BDS, and uh, BDS tries to cripple. Uh, the Israeli economy. But what they don't realize is that they cripple the lives of the Palestinians because a lot of, if you go to Israel, you go to these, uh, to a lot of companies, you'll see a lot of companies are comprised of Palestinian employees. So when you boycott a uh, an Israeli product, you're really directly affecting and impacting the lives of Palestinians that work there. Uh, so we also want to show the world that Israel is a is a democratic country in the Middle East and Christianity is thriving. I mean, Christians are respected. Their, their religion is respected in Israel, obviously. How long have you been with the Philos Project? So I've been there from the beginning. Uh, from In 2014, it was formed and I've been there since. Um, and Philos has um, helped us a great deal uh, from an aid perspective. Because what it has done is it has helped open um, doors in the, in the in American churches to us, the, especially the evangelical world. Mm. They've donated tremendously to help rebuild. So, for example, Odrana Camp that used to exist in Dohuk in northern Iraq. The where, refugee camp? Yes, there were 44 families there. They were our partner along with SALT and another organization. The SALT Foundation. SALT Foundation, yes. Yeah, so it was SALT Foundation, it was ICRC, it was Philos, and it was IGE. Uh, organization that created that uh, Odrana camp and Philos has helped open businesses. Philos has helped 
with uh, a lot of food distribution. So they've been really uh, assisting from that perspective. I think it's every summer, so I see your Facebook flooded with photos of Assyrian youth headed to Israel. Yes. Is this project, is this a par- partnership or a project that is sponsored by Philos, and what is the intent of this of this tr- annual trip? So, yes, it is f- uh, funded by Philos, and it's a really exciting program. I mean, you talk about it, I have a smile on my face, <laughs> <laughs> really, honestly. it's. Um, there are several reasons why we came up with this idea. So this is done through Passages. Passages is the brainchild of Philos that takes the Christian students' Uh, university level from across America to Israel for them to uh, rediscover or discover their Christian faith and to learn about the Jewish culture and really the the conflict between the Israelis and Palestinians. So for the Assyrians, it's a specialty project that we have or a specialty bus, we call it. The purpose of this is, number one, it's a religious trip that we take kids to holy sites across Israel. They discover or rediscover, they connect, they pray uh, as Christians, and miracles, really, Peter, miracles have happened uh, in Israel to our uh, groups, or when they have returned, they've witnessed miracles in their lives. So it's a really impactful religious trip. It is a an educa- educational trip from the perspective of you're in the Middle East, we take you to the border of uh, Lebanon and uh, Israel. We take you to the Syrian border as well. And you really, uh, we go to the Gaza border and you really get to see the realities on the ground firsthand. You are allowed to ask questions. We have uh, speakers who are pro-Israel, who are anti-Israel, who are pro-Christian in, in the Middle East. You really get a 360 degree approach. It is not, it is not in indoctrination, even though some Assyrians try to do Assyrian, some of them are love conspiracy theory, and they push it as a Zionist program, they push it as we're trying to bring people to make them um, Zionists, that is not correct. We want them to, we want to broaden their horizons to really see this very real conflict firsthand. So they get a chance to ask questions without any prejudice. We worship together. We pray together. We worship the Orthodox way, the Assyrian Church of the East way, the Catholic way, the Evangelical way. It's multi-denominational. Finally, but I think it is of uh, it is extremely important element of this trip, is to plant the seed of Assyrianism or national nationhood in their hearts. Uh, if they don't know the language, we promote language learning, that you need to learn the Aramaic Assyrian language. It is okay to be unique. It is okay to be different. But you must learn your language in order for you to exist in the diaspora. We teach them why should you care about Iraq? Why should you care about your brethren in Jordan, Lebanon, and Turkey? What are they going through? And uh, I can't tell you how many eyes have wi- have opened to the Iraqi Christian issue, the Assyrian issue from a a crisis perspective that a lot of people are volunteering for ICRC now. They want to help raise funds and some of them want to go on Gishru. And really, it's a fantastic program. And I believe, I believe working with Israel, working with the Jews is of utmost importance. I know I have uh, some naysayers that are hardcore, but I frankly don't care. The Jew, we can learn from the Jews of how they sustained themselves in the diaspora for 2,000 years. What is it that kept that fire burning for Jerusalem? I mean, look, for centuries, for centuries, they've said, next year in Jerusalem, next year in Jerusalem. 
What was the last time we said next year in Nineveh? I think I've heard Joe Donabi say it a couple of times, but I'm sure he's heard it from you. So, I mean, these are real. These are real. And it's okay to work with the Jews. It's, so, it's, it's actually great to work with the Jews. It's great to work with the cops. It's great to work with the Armenians. It's great to work with Ethiopians. We cannot do it alone. Ganon Qaganan concept. That is an, an age-old concept. It's not something that came up in 2014-15. It's been there for a long time. It goes so, so far. It's extremely essential, but it doesn't go all the way. Uh, we need friends. And our friends can be Armenians that have a successful country, that have a government, that are very successful lobbyists here in the U.S. Uh, and we have to partner with the Jews, with the, with the Israelis. Hands down, I believe that that, because you know why? Because our cause is not like the Palestinian cause. Why? We are the indigenous people of the land in Iraq. And so are the Jews. The Jews are indigenous people to the land of Israel. And they went home. They were helped and they did it Ganan Ganan, but also with help, yeah? For us, we have to do Ganan Ganan, but we also need a lot of help to go back home to Nineveh. We are in a better position today in some aspects than the Jews were 100 years ago. Can the state of Israel be seen as an ally to the Assyrians? That is a conversation that will come to light in the future. I'd like to leave it at that. What is your motivation behind activism? You know, I would say it's the Assyrian spirit in me and the Christian spirit in me that leads me. I don't want to wake up one day on my deathbed and say, when I was able to, I didn't do anything or I didn't do enough for my people. I want to be able to leave this world in a very small way, at least a better place for a few families. And really, I would love to if Lord wills, for to see my people a little bit more healed than they are today, because we are devastated across the world. What can we as Assyrians in the diaspora do, actionable items that we can do in the diaspora? Uh, please read. Please, please read. Reading is of utmost importance. We don't know our history. And I'm not talking 3,000 years ago history. The last hundred year history, our persecution, our thought leaders, our, our accomplishments, there are many. Uh, and for example, a lot of Americans, a lot of Europeans, they take pride in the last hundred year thought leaders. And we say, usually we always hear, we have nothing, we don't have anyone, we don't. We have great thought, thought leaders that no, are no longer with us. Uh, Naum Fayek wrote eloquently. David Perley wrote eloquently. Ninos Aho's poetry was beautiful, and he was a visionary. So please, please look into the last hundred year um, of our history, hundred years of our history, because it really shapes and forms your world with where we are today. And when you speak of this issue, don't just refer to three thousand years ago history really focus on uh, the last 50 years, 100 years with the people that you're speaking to. Those are the, the bricks that have been laid on top of one another for us to be in this predicament that we are today. So I would say read, educate yourself. Those are who are writers, whether you're poets, whether you're storytellers, whether you're eloquent writers that write for Americans or Europeans, please, please write, write about Assyrians. We need more writers. We need more intellectuals. I love when our kids, our young people study medicine or study, you know, nursing or, or engineering and law. 
but please also consider becoming politicians. Why should we not have generals in the Pentagon? Why should we not have diplomats in different parts of the world? Why should we not have more than Anna Ishu in our Congress? Think tanks in Washington, D.C. I have a lot of relationships with them, or I have many relationships with these many um, think tanks. They are looking for interns. So if you want to have an internship with D.C.-based organizations, please reach out to me. I'll open the door for you. Philo's project opens the door for our Syrian people. I would say I know we all suffer from some form of a PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Whether it's firsthand, whether it's secondhand, whether you want to admit it or not, we suffer from generational and collective PTSD. Um, we know it because it manifests itself in, uh, emo- in being emotional reactionaries and not trusting one another in the division and animosity that we see among ourselves. That is very real. So we have to take the steps towards healing that aspect. But in the midst of healing that, I, I personally find a lot of healing in reaching out to our brethren in the Middle East that are suffering right now. Because it is through suffering that you are able to heal your own suffering to some level, to some level. And I'm not a psychologist. I'm not an expert, but I'm speaking to you as an individual that helps me, helps me to deal with my own PTSD is, is when I'm able to serve others. Your brethren, the Assyrian men, women, and children are suffering today. There are, not all organizations are corrupt. Not all churches are corrupt, my friends. There are very good organizations out there like Iraqi Christian Relief Council that selflessly, selflessly do work. I need volunteers. I need people to help us fundraise. I need, pe- I need new ideas. You have new ideas, come to me. Your graphics designer, come to me. I need a lot of help. It's a one-woman one show, Peter. I need a lot of help. The door is open. I see you annually when I go to Iraq during Chab Nisan, during the Assyrian New Year. What is it that you're doing there on the ground? Going to Iraq is essential because you connect. Your roots are quenched with being in Iraq. Our roots are in Iraq. Yes, I was born in Iran. Someone was born in Turkey. But really, our ancestral homeland is what is calling our name. Yeah. So for me, being an Iranian born, my homeland is Iraq. So when I go there, I revive. I come to life. My American uh, followers on social media, they say, Juliana, we don't understand when you report from Iraq what you're saying, because a lot of it is in Assyrian, but we see your eyes speak to us, your body language. They say your eyes smile. And it's true. It is true. It's Iraq is contagious. The homeland is contagious. So I go there to revive, to become revived but also to really continuously learn from the Assyrians there. They give me courage. Their strength gives me courage. And there's always new challenges that I need to learn. I need to stay up to date. And of utmost importance, I believe, is I go there to visit the projects that I've implemented throughout the year. I go to Iraq two or three times a year because I want to see the funding that we send. Um, has it? Have they built the school, uh, the school program that we funded? Have they built the homes that we've funded? Have they built? Have they dug the wells? Have they fed the people? Have they? And they all have. Assyrian Aid Society is a partner of ours. Uh, that we've worked tirelessly through. Dominican Sisters of St. Catherine of Siena is another, another partner that we've worked with. Uh, there are multiple pro- partners in Iraq, in Lebanon, and in, jo- in Jordan and Turkey I've worked with um, that I go and visit. 
How does religion play a part in the Assyrian identity? And in what ways has that changed, stayed the same, and where do you think it's headed? That's a very, very complex question to answer. To me, look, my answers are private to me, right? I mean, meaning they're personal to me. So sure. I'm not speaking on any denomination's behalf. I'm just speaking as Juliana. I was baptized in the Chaldean church. I was raised as a Catholic, but I also was raised as uh, in the Assyrian church of the East. So for me, I'm a child of Christ and denominations don't mean much to me. Uh, I've gone to evangelical churches. So for me, worshiping the Lord, it is about you and the Lord. Yes, it's a relation. It's a personal relationship. You have to be humble. You have to be a servant and you have to surrender to him as difficult, as difficult as it is. So that's from a religious perspective. I personally think that the Church of the East has kept Assyrianism alive and Assyrianism has kept the Church of the East alive. It's a relationship. And a lot of people disagree. We've gone into a lot of discussions and arguments about this. But again, that's Juliana's belief, that I believe Church of the East has really kept the language together alive, kept us together. At the same time, I also know that in the Catholic world, in the Chaldean world, there are a lot of nationalist Assyrians that follow the Chaldean rite, yes? Our I nation isn't just limited to one denomination. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. There are a lot of evangelicals that are very hardcore Assyrians. So I say all of this is to say we need to separate religion from the political matters. Um, they cannot, they are intertwined. As much as possible, they should not be intertwined. Uh, because there are, there's division in the body of Christ, whether we like it or not. And that has funneled down into div dividing our nationalism, our na national nationhood, if you will. I pray and hope. I pray first and I hope second <laughs> to for for our church leaders to come together to really bring unity among members of their churches. It is really we see the devastation that it has caused between the Syriacs, the Chaldeans, and the Assyrians, and within the Assyrians, we're even more divided within the Assyrian churches. So, um, final answer, I think those two should be separate. Before the interview, we were talking about the Assyrian flag. Tell me about your personal connection to the Assyrian flag. So, as we all know, George Bedatanos, uh, Jora Bedatanos, designed the flag in the 1960s. I, am, I have the privilege and the honor to say that it was my great, my grandmother, my grandmother that embroidered the first Assyrian flag wow. uh, in the 1960s. She was born in Russia to my grandfather who had escaped Ormia. What was uh, her name? Sierra or Seira Lachin. Um, my grandfather escaped on foot from Ormia to Russia, married her, and then she, he was taken into a gulag camp in 1937, and she was sent to Iran along with my mother. In, it was in Iran that she learned how to embroider, to, put, to be able to put food on the table for my mother in the city of Hamadan. So Seira, my grandmother, was approached by Jora Bedatanos in Tehran and said, look, I've designed this flag. Can you please embroider it? And she did. And I'm told that the flag now is, uh, I believe it's flying in the United Nations or it's at the United Nations. Wow. Do you know if she embroidered other Assyrian flags or was that the only one? No, no, no. She embroidered multiple smaller ones. But the major, the big one was embroidered uh, first and then smaller ones as well. Wow. Unfortunately, I don't have any of them. Hmm. Help us understand a martyr 
versus someone feeling sorry for you because of what you went through? Very interesting. I believe there should be a study done on anatomy of martyrdom, the DNA of martyrdom. What is it? What does it look like? What does it mean? How does it happen? Uh, there are two types of martyrdoms, I believe. There's white martyrdom and there's red, meaning white martyrdom is when we're harassed and we're chased away from our homes and etc. So we suffer for Christ. Red martyrdom is uh, when our blood is spilled. I think, I mean, we all know martyrdom happens every day, not just in the Middle East, in North Korea, in China and other places in South America who where Christianity is not essentially or necessarily welcomed. In fact, in the world of Christianity, it is, a, it is an honor to wear the crown of martyrdom. And I'll give you an example of how I was caught and I didn't know how to answer this question. I was presenting in South Carolina. This uh, Orthodox priest came uh, to the presentation and he raised his hand in front of everybody and said, uh, why should I help you? Why should I help your people? Uh, why don't you want to wear, wear the crown of martyrdom? It, is an, it should be an honor for you to wear the crown of martyrdom. And we were all shocked, including me. And I said, look, we, the proverb says that we are commanded to help those who are being led away to death. That's all I will tell you. But really, I mean, it's very interesting what he said, and it was thought-provoking. Thought and martyrdom is not just for your faith, it's also for your nationality. I mean, we have countless of martyrs for our faith, for our, national, for our nationhood, for the survivor of, survival of our nation. And many of those who, uh, who we know their names and countless of those who were buried alive by, alive by Saddam Hussein, we honor them also as martyrs, obviously. That it's a privilege to die for what you believe in. If tomorrow ISIS knocks on my door and says, I will behead you or you convert to Islam, I will proudly, I'm on record, proudly will die for Christ. If someone comes and says, you have to renounce your Assyrian nationhood, I will proudly die for my Assyrian nationhood. And I would not want people to feel sorry for me or for the martyrs that we've had, our sacred holy martyrs that we've had. I think it should motivate the world. It should plant the seed of mobilization, the seed of pride for what those people have died for. And we ought to uphold that cause, whether it's Christianity or nationhood, the Assyrian nationhood, so their blood will not go in vain. That's extremely critical. So I think for me, what drives me every day is the memory of my great-grandmother was that was burnt by the Kurds and then she didn't die by her through her wounds but she was then beheaded I fight for my great-uncle that was dragged behind his horse by the Kurds in late 1800s I fight for in the honor of Fredo Naturaya, my great uncle, who died for this nation. Uh, my grandmother, Rabi Lilete Marazi, who dedicated her entire life for, as a young woman until the day she died in preservation of the Assyrian culture. So I do this for Christ, and I do this for Mother Assyria, uh, and I do this for my people. Aside from activism, I'm sure you have a life. What is it that you're currently working on? You know, uh, once... You're an activist, you're always an activist. You can't separate it from your day-to-day -day life. You breathe it, you walk it, you sleep it. It, is, it takes over your life. Uh, and I'm proud to say it's taken over mine. I wrote a poem, March of 2018. Somewhere in there I say, Self, what self? I do not know a self. I do not know where Assyria begins and I end. 
and I don't know where I begin and Assyria ends. So for me, this is like breathing. My work for the Assyrian nation is like breathing. And it leaves very little room for anything else. But I managed to squeeze a little bit of time that I have left to myself on something that I'm, which also hopefully will be used for advocacy, which is uh, a book that I'm finishing this month called Daughter of Nineveh, Pratit Nineveh. It's a memoir. A part of it is my memoir of how I lived in Iran. What was it like to be uh, fleeing Iran? And what was it like to live here and assimilate in the U.S. without losing my um, language and culture? The middle of the book is about the Assyrian history, culturally, nationalistically, and also religiously. The last portion of the book is about Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and Saddam Hussein, followed up with an epilogue of what someone who wants to be involved, what can they do? Um, as a non-Assyrian, and what is it that I ask of my Assyrian people? A call to action. A call to action, exactly. That's me. I'm an advocate who've, who've uh, dedicated her life. I do enjoy classical music greatly, um, and I do read. I believe in reading, and I promote reading to my, to my people, to whoever I know, and what are you my family. Reading? The 30-Year Genocide by Dr. Uh, Benny Morris. And, uh, and Ze'evi, Dr. Ze'evi. They both are from Ben-Gurion. I believe it is, it is the most eloquent book written on the Assyrian-Armenian-Greek genocide. They mention Assyrians extensively in the book. And I'm actually sharing the panel with Dr. Morris in September in New York. He and I will be speaking of the genocide. I know earlier we mentioned call of action, or in your book you also mentioned that you have written a call to action for Assyrians and non-Assyrians as well. How can people get in touch with you? I'm on social media, obviously. You can always reach me through social media. You can always um, contact me via our website, iraqichristianrelief.org, iraqichristianrelief.org. I'm a big texter, so you can text me. Uh, I'm terrible with email, so don't email me. But uh, but I'm here. I'm here to serve. And Peter, they can always reach you so they can reach me. <laughs> <laughs> Juliana, we have listeners from all over the world. What is one thing that you would like to share with them? Live with God and Assyria in your hearts. Don't separate them and don't give either of them up. It is who you are. It is who defines you. And be proud to be unique. Be proud to be different. Be proud that you speak the, an ancient language and you belong to a beautiful, beautiful nation called Assyria. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, help us by sharing it out, whether that's on your social media or telling someone about it. We appreciate all of your support in continuing to spread the word about the podcast. Thank you all. That's it for this week. See you next week.